Chapter Nineteen of the Oregon Trail. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Oregon Trail by Francis Parkman, Jr. Chapter Nineteen, Passage of the Mountains. When I took leave of Shaw at Labonte's camp, I promised that I would meet him at Fort Laramie on the first of August. That day, according to my reckoning, was now close at hand. It was impossible at best to fulfill my engagement exactly, and my meeting with him must have been postponed until many days after the appointed time, had not the plans of the Indians very well coincided with my own. They, too, intended to pass the mountains and move toward the fort. To do so at this point was impossible because there was no opening and in order to find a passage we were obliged to go twelve or fourteen miles southward. Late in the afternoon the camp got in motion, defiling back through the mountains along the same narrow passage by which they had entered. I rode in company with three or four young Indians at the rear, and the moving swarm stretched before me in the ruddy light of sunset or in the deep shadow of the mountains far beyond my sight. It was an ill-omened spot they chose to encamp upon, when they were there just a year before, a war party of ten men, led by the whirlwind's son, had gone out against the enemy, and not one had ever returned. This was the immediate cause of this season's warlike preparations. I was not a little astonished when I came to the camp at the confusion of horrible sounds with which it was filled. Howls, shrieks, and wailings were heard from all the women present, many of whom, not content with this exhibition of grief for the loss of their friends and relatives, were gashing their legs deeply with knives. A warrior in the village, who had lost a brother in the expedition, chose another mode of displaying his sorrow. The Indians, who, though often rapacious, are utterly devoid of avarice, are accustomed in times of mourning, or on other solemn occasions, to give away the whole of their possessions, and reduce themselves to nakedness and want. The warrior in question led his two best horses into the centre of the village and gave them away to his friends, upon which songs and acclamations in praise of his generosity mingled with the cries of the women. On the next morning we entered once more among the mountains. There was nothing in their appearance either grand or picturesque, though they were desolate to the last degree, being mere piles of black and broken rocks without trees or vegetation of any kind. As we passed among them along a wide valley, I noticed Raymond riding by the side of a younger squaw, to whom he was addressing various insinuating compliments. All the old squaws in the neighborhood watched his proceedings in great admiration, and the girl herself would turn aside her head and laugh. Just then the old mule thought proper to display her vicious pranks. She began to rear and plunge most furiously. Raymond was an excellent rider, and at first he stuck fast in his seat, but the moment after I saw the mule's hind legs flourishing in the air and my unlucky follower pitching head foremost over her ears. There was a burst of screams and laughter from all the women in which his mistress herself took part, and Raymond was instantly assailed by such a shower of witticisms that he was glad to ride forward out of hearing. Not long after, as I rode near him, I heard him shouting to me, he was pointing toward a detached rocky hill that stood in the middle of the valley before us, and from behind it a long file of elk came out at full speed and entered an opening in the side of the mountain. They had scarcely disappeared when whoops and exclamations came from fifty voices around me. 
the young men leaped from their horses, flung down their heavy buffalo robes, and ran at full speed toward the foot of the nearest mountain. Reynal also broke away at a gallop in the same direction. "'Come on, come on!' he called to us. "'Do you see that band of bighorn up yonder? If there's one of them, there's a hundred. In fact, near the summit of the mountain I could see a large number of small white objects moving rapidly upward among the precipices, while others were filing along its rocky profile. Anxious to see the sport, I galloped forward, and, entering a passage in the side of the mountain, ascended the loose rocks as far as my horse could carry me. Here I fastened her to an old pine tree that stood alone, scorching in the sun. At that moment Raymond called to me from the right that another band of sheep was close at hand in that direction. I ran up to the top of the opening, which gave me a full view into the rocky gorge beyond, and here I plainly saw some fifty or sixty sheep, almost within rifle-shot, clattering upward among the rocks and endeavoring after their usual custom to reach the highest point. The naked Indians bounded up lightly in pursuit. In a moment the game and hunters disappeared. Nothing could be seen or heard but the occasional report of a gun, more and more distant, reverberating among the rocks. I turned to descend, and as I did so I could see the valley below alive with Indians passing rapidly through it, on horseback and on foot. A little farther on we were all stopping as they came up. The camp was preparing and the lodges rising. I descended to this spot, and soon after Reynal and Raymond returned. They bore between them a sheep which they had pelted to death with stones from the edge of a ravine, along the bottom of which it was attempting to escape. One by one the hunters came dropping in. Yet such is the activity of the Rocky Mountain sheep that, although sixty or seventy men were out in pursuit, not more than half a dozen animals were killed. Of these only one was a full-grown male. He had a pair of horns twisted like a ram's, the dimensions of which were almost beyond belief. I have seen among the Indians ladles with long handles capable of containing more than a quart, cut from such horns. There is something peculiarly interesting in the character and habits of the mountain sheep, whose chosen retreats are above the region of vegetation and storms, and who leap among the giddy precipices of their aerial home as actively as the antelope skims over the prairies below. Through the whole of the next morning we were moving forward among the hills. On the following day the heights gathered around us, and the passage of the mountains began in earnest. Before the village left its camping ground, I set forward in company with the Eagle Feather, a man of powerful frame but of bad and sinister face. His son, a light-limbed boy, rode with us, and another Indian named the Panther was also of the party. Leaving the village out of sight behind us, we rode together up a rocky defile. After a while, however, the Eagle Feather discovered in the distance some appearance of game, and set off with his son in pursuit of it while i went forward with the panther this was a mere nom de guerre for like many indians he concealed his real name out of some superstitious notion he was a very noble-looking fellow as he suffered his ornamented buffalo robe to fall into folds about his loins his stately and graceful figure was fully displayed and while he sat his horse in an easy attitude the long feathers of the prairie cock fluttering from the crown of his head he seemed the very model of a wild prairie rider. He had not the same features as those of other Indians. Unless his handsome face greatly belied him, 
he was free from the jealousy, suspicion, and malignant cunning of his people. For the most part, a civilized white man can discover but very few points of sympathy between his own nature and that of an Indian. With every disposition to do justice to their good qualities, he must be conscious that an impassable gulf lies between him and his red brethren of the prairie. Nay, so alien to himself do they appear that, having breathed for a few months or a few weeks the air of this region he begins to look upon them as a troublesome and dangerous species of wild beast and if expedient he could shoot them with as little compunction as they themselves would experience after performing the same office upon him yet in the countenance of the panther i gladly read that there were at least some points of sympathy between him and me we were excellent friends and as we rode forward together through rocky passages, deep dells, and little barren plains, he occupied himself very zealously in teaching me the Dakota language. After a while we came to a little grassy recess, where some gooseberry bushes were growing at the foot of a rock, and these offered such temptation to my companion that he gave over his instruction, and stopped so long to gather the fruit that before we were in motion again the van of the village came in view an old woman appeared leading down her pack-horse among the rocks above savage after savage followed and the little dell was soon crowded with the throng that morning's march was one not easily to be forgotten it led us through a sublime waste a wilderness of mountains and pine forests over which the spirit of loneliness and silence seemed brooding above and below little could be seen but the same dark green foliage it overspread the valleys and the mountains were clothed with it from the black rocks that crowned their summits to the impetuous streams that circled round their base scenery like this it might seem could have no very cheering effect on the mind of a sick man for to-day my disease had again assailed me in the midst of a horde of savages but if the reader has ever wandered with a true hunter's spirit among the forests of maine or the more picturesque solitudes of the adirondack mountains he will understand how the sombre woods and mountains around me might have awakened any other feelings than those of gloom in truth they recalled gladdening recollections of similar scenes in a distant and far different land after we had been advancing for several hours through passages always narrow often obstructed and difficult i saw at a little distance on our right a narrow opening between two high wooded precipices all within seemed darkness and mystery in the mood in which I found myself, something strongly impelled me to enter. Passing over the intervening space, I guided my horse through the rocky portal, and as I did so, instinctively drew the covering from my rifle, half expecting that some unknown evil lay in ambush within those dreary recesses. The place was shut in among tall cliffs, and so deeply shadowed by a host of old pine trees that, though the sun shone bright on the side of the mountain, nothing but a dim twilight could penetrate within as far as i could see it had no tenants except a few hawks and owls who dismayed at my intrusion flapped hoarsely away among the shaggy branches i moved forward determined to explore the mystery to the bottom and soon became involved among the pines the genius of the place exercised a strange influence upon my mind its faculties were stimulated into extraordinary activity, and as I passed along, many half-forgotten incidents and the images of persons and things far distant rose rapidly before me with surprising distinctness. 
in that perilous wilderness eight hundred miles removed beyond the faintest vestige of civilization the scenes of another hemisphere the seat of ancient refinement passed before me more like a succession of vivid paintings than any mere dreams of the fancy i saw the church of st peter's illumined on the evening of easter day the whole majestic pile from the cross to the foundation stone penciled in fire and shedding a radiance like the serene light of the moon on the sea of upturned faces below i saw the peak of mount etna towering above its inky mantle of clouds and lightly curling its wreaths of milk-white smoke against the soft sky flushed with the sicilian sunset i saw also the gloomy vaulted passages and the narrow cells of the passionist convent where i once had sojourned for a few days with the fanatical monks its pale stern inmates in their robes of black and the grated window from whence i could look out a forbidden indulgence upon the melancholy coliseum and the crumbling ruins of the eternal city the mighty glaciers of the splugen too rose before me gleaming in the sun like polished silver and those terrible solitudes the birthplace of the rhine where bursting from the bowels of its native mountains it lashes and foams down the rocky abyss into the little valley of ander these recollections and many more crowded upon me until remembering that it was hardly wise to remain long in such a place i mounted again and retraced my steps Issuing from between the rocks, I saw a few rods before me, the men, women, and children, dogs, and horses, still filing slowly across the little glen. A bare round hill rose directly above them. I rode to the top, and from this point I could look down on the savage procession as it passed just beneath my feet, and far on the left I could see its thin and broken line, visible only at intervals, stretching away for miles among the mountains. On the farthest ridge horsemen were still descending, like mere specks in the distance. I remained on the hill until all had passed, and then, descending, followed after them. A little farther on I found a very small meadow set deeply among steep mountains, and here the whole village had encamped. The little spot was crowded with a confused and disorderly host. Some of the lodges were already completely prepared, or the squaws perhaps were busy in drawing the heavy coverings of skin over the bare poles. Others were as yet mere skeletons, while others still, poles covering and all, lay scattered in complete disorder on the ground among buffalo robes, bales of meat, domestic utensils, harness, and weapons. Squaws were screaming to one another, horses rearing and plunging dogs yelping, eager to be disburdened of their loads, while the fluttering of feathers and the gleam of barbaric ornaments added liveliness to the scene. The small children ran about amid the crowd, while many of the boys were scrambling among the overhanging rocks, and standing with their little bows in their hands, looking down upon a restless throng. In contrast with the general confusion, a circle of old men and warriors sat in the midst, smoking in profound indifference and tranquillity. The disorder at length subsided. The horses were driven away to feed along the adjacent valley, and the camp assumed an air of listless repose. It was scarcely past noon. A vast white canopy of smoke from a burning forest to the eastward overhung the place and partially obscured the sun yet the heat was almost insupportable. The lodges stood crowded together without order in the narrow space. Each was a perfect hothouse within which the lazy proprietor lay sleeping. The camp was as silent as death. 
Nothing stirred except now and then an old woman passing from lodge to lodge. The girls and young men sat together in groups under the pine trees upon the surrounding heights. The dogs lay panting on the ground, too lazy even to growl at the white man. At the entrance of the meadow there was a cold spring among the rocks, completely overshadowed by tall trees and dense undergrowth. In this cold and shady retreat, a number of girls were assembled, sitting together on rocks and fallen logs, discussing the latest gossip of the village, or laughing and throwing water with their hands at the intruding Meneaska. The minutes seemed lengthened into hours. I lay for a long time under a tree studying the Ogallala tongue with the zealous instructions of my friend the panther. When we both tired of this, I went and lay down by the side of a deep, clear pool formed by the water of the spring. A shoal of little fishes of about a pin's length were playing in it, sporting together, as it seemed, very amicably. But on closer observation, I saw that they were engaged in a cannibal warfare among themselves. Now and then a small one would fall a victim, and immediately disappear down the maw of his voracious conqueror. Every moment, however, the tyrant of the pool, a monster about three inches long with staring goggle eyes, would slowly issue forth with quivering fins and tail from under the shelving bank. The small fry at this would suspend their hostilities and scatter in panic at the appearance of overwhelming force. Soft-hearted philanthropists, thought I, may sigh long for their peaceful millennium, for from minnows up to men, life is an incessant battle. Evening approached at last. The tall mountain tops around were still gay and bright in sunshine, while our deep glen was completely shadowed. I left the camp and ascended a neighboring hill, whose rocky summit commanded a wide view over the surrounding wilderness. The sun was still glaring through the stiff pines on the ridge of the western mountain. In a moment he was gone, and as the landscape rapidly darkened, I turned again toward the village. As I descended the hill, the howling of wolves and the barking of foxes came up out of the dim woods from far and near. The camp was glowing with a multitude of fires, and alive with dusky naked figures whose tall shadows flitted among the surrounding crags. I found a circle of smokers seated in their usual place, that is, on the ground before the lodge of a certain warrior, who seemed to be generally known for his social qualities. I sat down to smoke a parting pipe with my savage friends. That day was the first of August, on which I had promised to meet Shaw at Fort Laramie. The fort was less than two days' journey distant, and that my friend need not suffer anxiety on my account, I resolved to push forward as rapidly as possible to the place of meeting. I went to look after the hailstorm, and having found him, I offered him a handful of hawk's bells and a paper of vermilion on condition that he would guide me in the morning through the mountains within sight of Laramie Creek. The hailstorm ejaculated, How? and accepted the gift. Nothing more was said on either side. The matter was settled, and I lay down to sleep in Congratonga's lodge. Long before daylight, Raymond shook me by the shoulder. Everything is ready, he said. I went out. The morning was chill, damp, and dark, and the whole camp seemed asleep. The hailstorm sat on horseback before the lodge, and my mare Pauline and the mule which Raymond rode were picketed near it. We saddled and made our other arrangements for the journey, but before these were completed the camp began to stir, and the lodge coverings fluttered and rustled as the squaws pulled them down in preparation for departure. 
Just as the light began to appear, we left the ground, passing up through a narrow opening among the rocks which led eastward out of the meadow. Gaining the top of this passage, I turned round and sat looking back upon the camp, dimly visible in the gray light of the morning. All was alive with the bustle of preparation. I turned away, half unwilling to take a final leave of my savage associates. We turned to the right, passing among the rocks and pine trees so dark that for a while we could scarcely see our way. The country in front was wild and broken, half hill, half plain partly open and partly covered with woods of pine and oak. Barriers of lofty mountains encompassed it. The woods were fresh and cool in the early morning. The peaks of the mountains were wreathed with mist, and sluggish vapors were entangled among the forests upon their sides. At length the black pinnacle of the tallest mountain was tipped with gold by the rising sun. About that time the hailstorm who rode in front gave a low exclamation. Some large animal leaped up from among the bushes, and an elk, as I thought, his horns thrown back over his neck, darted past us across the open space, and bounded like a mad thing away among the adjoining pines. Raymond was soon out of his saddle, but before he could fire, the animal was full two hundred yards distant. The ball struck its mark, though much too low for mortal effect. The elk, however, wheeled in its flight and ran at full speed among the trees nearly at right angles to his former course. I fired and broke his shoulder. Still he moved on, limping down into the neighboring woody hollow, whither the young Indian followed and killed him. When we reached the spot we discovered him to be no elk, but a black-tailed deer, an animal nearly twice the size of the common deer and quite unknown to the east. We began to cut him up. The reports of the rifles had reached the ears of the Indians, and before our task was finished several of them came to the spot. Leaving the hide of the deer to the hailstorm, we hung as much of the meat as we wanted behind our saddles, left the rest to the Indians, and resumed our journey. Meanwhile the village was on its way, and had gone so far that to get in advance of it was impossible. Therefore we directed our course so as to strike its line of march at the nearest point. In a short time, through the dark trunks of the pines, we could see the figures of the Indians as they passed. Once more we were among them. They were moving with even more than their usual precipitation, crowded close together in a narrow pass between rocks and old pine trees. We were on the eastern descent of the mountain, and soon came to a rough and difficult defile leading down a very steep declivity. The whole swarm poured down together, filling the rocky passageway like some turbulent mountain stream. The mountains before us were on fire, and had been so for weeks. The view in front was obscured by a vast dim sea of smoke and vapor, while on either hand the tall cliffs, bearing aloft their crest of pines, thrust their heads boldly through it, and the sharp pinnacles and broken ridges of the mountains beyond them were faintly traceable, as through a veil. The scene in itself was most grand and imposing, but with the savage multitude, the armed warriors, the naked children, the gaily apparelled girls, pouring impetuously down the heights, it would have formed a noble subject for a painter, and only the pen of a Scot could have done it justice in description. We passed over a burnt tract where the ground was hot beneath the horse's feet, and between the blazing sides of two mountains. Before long we had descended to a softer region, where we found a succession of little valleys watered by a stream, along the borders of which grew abundance of wild gooseberries and currants, and the children and many of the men straggled from the line of march to gather them as we passed along. 
Descending still farther, the view changed rapidly. The burning mountains were behind us, and through the open valleys in front we could see the ocean-like prairies stretching beyond the sight. After passing through a line of trees that skirted the brook, the Indians filed out upon the plains. I was thirsty and knelt down by the little stream to drink. As I mounted again, I very carelessly left my rifle among the grass, and my thoughts being otherwise absorbed, I rode for some distance before discovering its absence. As the reader may conceive, I lost no time in turning about and galloping back in search of it. Passing the line of Indians, I watched every warrior as he rode by me at a canter, and at length discovered my rifle in the hands of one of them, who on my approaching to claim it immediately gave it up. Having no other means of acknowledging the obligation, I took off one of my spurs and gave it to him. He was greatly delighted, looking upon it as a distinguished mark of favor, and immediately held out his foot for me to buckle it on. As soon as I had done so, he struck it with force into the side of his horse, who gave a violent leap. The Indian laughed and spurred harder than before. At this the horse shot away like an arrow amid the screams and laughter of the squaws, and the ejaculations of the men who exclaimed, I, Good! at the potent effect of my gift. The Indian had no saddle and nothing in place of a bridle except a leather string tied round the horse's jaw. The animal was, of course, wholly uncontrollable, and stretched away at full speed over the prairie till he and his rider vanished behind a distant swell. I never saw the man again, but I presume no harm came to him. An Indian on horseback has more lives than a cat. The village encamped on a scorching prairie close to the foot of the mountains. The heat was most intense and penetrating. The coverings of the lodges were raised a foot or more from the ground in order to procure some circulation of air, and Reynal thought proper to lay aside his trapper's dress of buckskin and assume the very scanty costume of an Indian. Thus elegantly attired, he stretched himself in his lodge on a buffalo robe, alternately cursing the heat and puffing at the pipe which he and I passed between us. There was present also a select circle of Indian friends and relatives. A small boiled puppy was served up as a parting feast, to which was added, by way of dessert, a wooden bowl of gooseberries from the mountains. "'Look there,' said Reynal, pointing out of the opening of his lodge. Do you see that line of buttes about fifteen miles off? Well, now, do you see that farthest one with the white speck on the face of it? Do you think you ever saw it before? It looks to me, said I, like the hill that we were camped under when we were on Laramie Creek six or eight weeks ago. You've hit it, answered Reynal. Go and bring in the animals, Raymond, said I. We'll camp there tonight and start for the fort in the morning. The mare and the mule were soon before the lodge. We saddled them, and in the meantime a number of Indians collected about us. The virtues of Pauline, my strong, fleet, and hardy little mare, were well known in camp, and several of the visitors were mounted upon good horses which they had brought me as presents. I promptly declined their offers, since accepting them would have involved the necessity of transferring poor Pauline into their barbarous hands. We took leave of Reynal, but not of the Indians, who are accustomed to dispense with such superfluous ceremonies. Leaving the camp, we rode straight over the prairie toward the white-faced bluff, whose pale ridges swelled gently against the horizon like a cloud. An Indian went with us, whose name I forget, though the ugliness of his face and the ghastly width of his mouth dwell vividly in my recollection. 
The antelope were numerous, but we did not heed them. We rode directly toward our destination over the arid plains and barren hills until, late in the afternoon, half spent with heat, thirst, and fatigue, we saw a gladdening sight, the long line of trees and the deep gulf that marked the course of Laramie Creek. Passing through the growth of huge, dilapidated old cottonwood trees that bordered the creek, we rode across to the other side. The rapid and foaming waters were filled with fish playing and splashing in the shallows. As we gained the farther bank, our horses turned eagerly to drink, and we, kneeling on the sand, followed their example. We had not gone far before the scene began to grow familiar. "'We're getting near home, Raymond,' said I. There stood the big tree under which we had encamped so long. There were the white cliffs that used to look down upon our tent when it stood at the bend of the creek. There was the meadow in which our horses had grazed for weeks, and a little farther on, the prairie dog village where I had beguiled many a languid hour in persecuting the unfortunate inhabitants. "'We're going to catch it now,' said Raymond, turning his broad, vacant face up toward the sky." In truth, the landscape, the cliffs and the meadow, the stream and the groves were darkening fast. Black masses of cloud were swelling up in the south, and the thunder was growling ominously. "'We will camp here,' I said, pointing to a dense grove of trees lower down the stream. Raymond and I turned toward it, but the Indian stopped and called earnestly after us. When we demanded what was the matter, he said that the ghosts of two warriors were always among those trees, and that if we slept there they would scream and throw stones at us all night, and perhaps steal our horses before morning. Thinking it as well to humor him, we left behind us the haunt of these extraordinary ghosts, and passed on toward Chugwater, riding at full gallop, for the big drops began to patter down. Soon we came in sight of the poplar saplings that grew about the mouth of the little stream. We leaped to the ground, threw off our saddles, turned our horses loose, and, drawing our knives, began to slash among the bushes to cut twigs and branches for making a shelter against the rain. Bending down the taller saplings as they grew, we piled the young shoots upon them, and thus made a convenient penthouse. But all our labor was useless. The storm scarcely touched us. Half a mile on our right the rain was pouring down like a cataract, and the thunder roared over the prairie like a battery of cannon, while we, by good fortune, received only a few heavy drops from the skirt of the passing cloud. The weather cleared, and the sun set gloriously. Sitting close under our leafy canopy, we proceeded to discuss a substantial meal of wasna which Weawashtai had given me. The Indian had brought with him his pipe and a bag of shangsasha, so before lying down to sleep we sat for some time smoking together. Previously, however, our wide-mouthed friend had taken the precaution of carefully examining the neighborhood. He reported that eight men, counting them on his fingers, had been encamped there not long before. Bissonnette, Paul Dorion, Antoine Le Rouge, Richardson, and four others, whose names he could not tell. All this proved strictly correct. By what instinct he had arrived at such accurate conclusions, I am utterly at a loss to divine. It was still quite dark when I awoke and called Raymond. The Indian was already gone, having chosen to go on before us to the fort. Setting out after him, we rode for some time in complete darkness, and when the sun at length rose, glowing like a fiery ball of copper, we were ten miles distant from the fort. 
at length from the broken summit of a tall sandy bluff we could see fort laramie miles before us standing by the side of the stream like a little gray speck in the midst of the bounding desolation i stopped my horse and sat for a moment looking down upon it it seemed to me the very centre of comfort and civilization we were not long in approaching it for we rode at speed the greater part of the way laramie creek still intervened between us and the friendly walls Entering the water at the point where we had struck upon the bank, we raised our feet to the saddle behind us, and thus, kneeling as it were on horseback, passed dry-shod through the swift current. As we rode up the bank, a number of men appeared in the gateway. Three of them came forward to meet us. In a moment I distinguished Shaw, Henry Chatillon followed with his face of manly simplicity and frankness, and Delorier came last with a broad grin of welcome. The meeting was not on either side one of mere ceremony. For my own part the change was a most agreeable one, from the society of savages and men little better than savages, to that of my gallant and high-minded companion and our noble-hearted guide. My appearance was equally gratifying to Shaw, who was beginning to entertain some very uncomfortable surmises concerning me. Bordeaux greeted me very cordially and shouted to the cook, this functionary was a new acquisition, having lately come from Fort Pierre with the trading wagons. Whatever skill he might have boasted, he had not the most promising materials to exercise it upon. He set before me, however, a breakfast of biscuit, coffee, and salt pork. It seemed like a new phase of existence to be seated once more on a bench, with a knife and fork, a plate and teacup, and something resembling a table before me. The coffee seemed delicious, and the bread was a most welcome novelty, since for three weeks I had eaten scarcely anything but meat, and that for the most part without salt. The meal also had the relish of good company, for opposite to me sat Shaw in elegant dishabille. If one is anxious thoroughly to appreciate the value of a congenial companion, he has only to spend a few weeks by himself in an Ogallala village and if he can contrive to add to his seclusion a debilitating and somewhat critical illness, his perceptions upon this subject will be rendered considerably more vivid. Shaw had been upward of two weeks at the fort. I found him established in his old quarters, a large apartment usually occupied by the absent bourgeois. In one corner was a soft and luxuriant pile of excellent buffalo robes, and here I lay down. Shaw brought me three books. Here, said he, is your Shakespeare and Byron, and here is the Old Testament, which has as much poetry in it as the other two put together. I chose the worst of the three, and for the greater part of that day lay on the buffalo robes, fairly reveling in the creations of that resplendent genius, which has achieved no more signal triumph than that of half beguiling us to forget the pitiful and unmanly character of its possessor. End of chapter 19